Welcome back to Kind of Cute, and if you're new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Evan, I'm your host, and on Kind of Cute, we discuss articles from the cut and my general pop culture musings. We truly have a smorgasbord of content to discuss today. We're going to be skipping all over the place, but there's just so much that's been going on lately. All right, the first thing I wanted to touch on was these pictures of Florence Pugh and Will Poulter. I'm guessing you know who Florence Pugh is. Notably for me, she's in the upcoming movie co-starring Harry Styles that Olivia Wilde directed, Don't Worry Darling, but she's been in Marvel shows, she was in Midsommar, you know who Florence Pugh is, she's dating Zach Braff, so the drama was Will Poulter, which you probably know him as the man with the eyebrows, you know, they like are very arch, they stick up a lot. Okay, there was pictures of them on the beach together, kind of, and they looked a little bit flirty. She was putting sunscreen on him. And if we know anything about Florence Pugh, it's that she does not like people coming for her relationship with Zach Braff because a while ago, people were very disturbed that he's much older than her. So when it came out that people were insinuating that she was with Will Poulter, she was pissed. And she went on her Instagram stories and just kind of went off. So she posts a series of stories and she's like, this is getting a little silly. And I know Will Poulter and I are not dating. We went to the beach with our friends who are always about a half meter away from us in every picture, but have been cleverly cut out, framed out so that it looks otherwise. You can literally see my best friend in the corner of so many shots and Archie's arm at the sides. I understand that the nature of this job is that you sometimes get your privacy completely bulldozed by the paparazzi, but to fabricate, this stuff actually does more damage than good. Thanks for saying we look sexy doesn't mean we're doing the sexy. (laughs) Oh God, that part made me cringe. I'm like, oh, Florence, sometimes you really come out with like (laughs) the mom language. And then she posted pictures of her with her friends and saying, you know, this is my best mate, Olive, who I actually did snuggle with for hours on this bed. What's hilarious is my nipple kept popping out and I'm actually gobsmacked that they didn't catch it. Probably could see the pap in the distance hiding behind some poor family waiting for the optimum time of let's make a fake relationship. So, I mean, she was just pissed. She posted a photo of Will and the other guy friend that was with them. And she's like, look at them, enjoying their private time, soaking up the sun, enjoying their no drama holiday. <laughs> and I, I just always love celebrity responses like this because they always feel a little bit off the cuff. Like she just gets on her Instagram stories and she's angry. It feels very much like me when I'm responding to like an angry TikTok comment And, you know, I don't have a whole PR team behind me. So I always kind of wonder if her PR team gives her the go ahead on this or if she's just like, no, we're going on the stories. We're hashing this shit out. But, you know, good for her. Whatever. She's making it clear she's still, you know, actually, I don't she's not making it clear she's still with Zach Braff because I think part of the reason this story got some flames under it and people were going with it is because there's rumors for the past couple of months that her and Zach are no longer together. So when people saw Will and her hanging out, they really latched onto it and they're like, oh my God, this is her new boyfriend. But nowhere in this does she mention Zach. So maybe they aren't together anymore. I guess we just will have to wait to Florence's next stories to truly know. But I also wanted to talk about this because I've noticed this kind of consensus on the internet that people are thirsting over Will Poulter, eyebrow boy. And it just made me feel like these these men who've been around for a while now, I first saw Will in that, I think it was called Meet the Millers. It was the one with Jennifer Aniston and uh, Emma Roberts. 
and they're trying to smuggle drugs <laughs> and he's in that. And, um, that was kind of the first time I really saw him, but I, I'm just seeing this resurgence lately. We have Miles Teller who's having this thirst, like immense thirst over him because of the new Top Gun movie. We have Austin Butler, who I saw for the first time in The Carrie Diaries. He is in the Elvis film coming out that's been getting so much talk about it. People are already saying he's going to win the, the Oscar for it. He's really leaned into his method acting. There's all these interviews of him like with this really southern draw. This man is from California. In, in case you forgot, he is literally from California. Does not have a southern accent, but he can't escape the method acting. And it actually creeps me out a little bit when celebrities do that. I'm like, honey, you're not in the film anymore. You can drop it now. Um, who else have we seen come back? I don't know. I just feel like everything's like, it's all coming full circle to, I would say maybe like the 2012 era. I've been a Miles Teller fan forever. And I feel like he's become less easy for me to fangirl over now because he is a little played out. He's married now. I don't know. Back in the day though, I was so infatuated with him. I watched every movie he was in. I think he's beautiful. I think he has that kind of Vince Vaughn charisma about him. But again, I think the general public is really coming around and I love seeing these trends and kind of who are like the the hot boys of the moment. I don't know exactly how to group all these men together, but I just, again, I think it's the 2012 period having a resurgence. <laughs> oh, also back to meet the Millers that Will Poulter was in, Jason Sudeikis was the leading man in that. For some reason in my mind, it was Jason Bateman, but it's Jason Sudeikis. Someone called me out. I did a TikTok and I pronounced his name Sudeikis, which I tend to do. And I guess it's technically Sudeikis, but Sudeikis just like it, it has a better flow, you know? Okay. I wanted to start out with something a little more lighthearted because we're about to get into some heavier topics. I apologize ahead of time. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard verdict. And I try to speak sensitively on here, but I know that I fuck that up on the regular. Probably every episode I say something offensive. Again, I've realized this from my TikToks. I will think I will say something so innocuous and people will come for me. So I do apologize for that. I really do try to be sensitive, but at the same time, speak my mind and give you my honest opinion on things. That being said, I am so sorry for any feelings that this whole case has brought to the surface for people. I know there are so many people in this world who have suffered sexual assault, intimate partner violence. And if you want to skip ahead a few minutes, please too. And hopefully this is slightly put to rest now with the verdict being out. But I do think Amber's team will appeal the verdict and they've already hinted at them doing so. That that's their plan. But again, if you want to skip ahead a few minutes, please, please do. I will say I was shocked by the verdict. And I've heard a lot of misreporting on the damages that were awarded in other podcasts that I listened to just like literally not even doing the bare minimum <laughs> to check what they're saying and again I know I fuck up I say the wrong thing on here all the time but I do hope I'm gonna get this right for you guys so the jury awarded 10 million dollars to Johnny Depp in compensatory damages and five million dollars in punitive damages and then for Amber Heard's claims against Johnny they awarded her two million dollars okay first off compensatory damages are kind of just like giving justice to the person who was sued. That's the purpose of them very broadly, very in lay terms. They're kind of like, this is what you deserve for what you've gone through. Punitive damages are meant to punish the person who committed the acts. 
they are sending a message. They are saying to Amber Heard, you are getting these damages because what we think you did was so reprehensible that we want you to be punished in a way that you'll never do something like this again. In my eyes, punitive damages are somewhat rare and hard to obtain. And like I said, it is really sending a message to whoever those are awarded against. So I was frankly shocked by that and especially the fact that they awarded half of what the compensatory damages were in punitive damages. That being said, the state of Virginia where this case was heard, they have a statutory cap on punitive damages, which means that if punitive damages are awarded in a case, no matter what, they're going to be capped at $350,000 and they can't go over that. So the judge right after the verdict was read said, okay, yes, you know, the, this verdict is entered, but uh, the punitive damages are going to go back down to $350,000. So that brings us to Johnny technically being awarded 10000 or I'm sorry, $10,350,000, 2 to Amber, which nets Johnny $8,350,000. It's to be seen if Johnny's actually going to pursue her for that money. And like I said, because we're going to have the appeals process, it's really going to put a freeze on a lot of what's what's happening here. And appeals processes can take a while to play out. So in Virginia circuit courts, you have 30 days to appeal the decision. So that timeline is not negotiable. If Amber's, if Amber's attorneys are appealing, they will do so within 30 days. But what happens after that can end up taking a long time. A lot of times you'll see extensions on both sides to fight, to brief, to respond. So I don't think in any way we've seen the end of this case. And I will be following how it goes down because, frankly, I am disturbed by the verdict. I watched the verdict live. It was also interesting that first, the jury had not properly completed the verdict form. So the judge calls up the attorneys for a sidebar and explains that the jury's going to have to go back and properly fill in the verdict form. And as I was watching it, I realized Depp had come out on top because when his attorneys walked back to the table, they looked very pleased. So that was sort of bizarre, like seeing that they knew what happened. You could tell Amber and her attorneys looked distraught. I wanted to go over a little bit the actual verdict form because this is what I'm struggling with in this case. (sighs) You know, the verdict form walks through the specific statements in the Washington Post op-ed that they were trying to prove were defamatory. And I, looking at these statements, I just struggle with how the jury found that these statements were false. Because let's just go through them. The first one is, I spoke up about sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. It is true that Amber spoke up about sexual violence. So to me, it's like, how is that statement false? What, you know, what this case I feel like kind of turned into was Depp's team saying that Amber Heard's original restraining order against Depp when she was getting a divorce, that's where the defamation sort of began. But looking at this statement that was published in the Washington Post, just, you know, as someone who didn't watch every moment of every trial, but as a lawyer, I just, I struggle with that. And then the next statement, then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. 
This is a carefully crafted sentence that I fully believe was looked over by the Washington Post legal team and probably Amber Heard's if she had, she did have an entertainment lawyer at the time that I would assume looked over this. She did become a public figure representing domestic abuse when she walked out of the courtroom after getting her restraining order and was pictured with what appeared to be bruises on her face. Again, I do not see how that is a false statement because that is what happened in our society and in our culture. The next statement, I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. This is something we have all seen play out. I think we can all see how men in power are protected. I'm not even talking about Johnny when I'm talking about these statements. I'm just trying to read to you the actual statements that were found to be defamatory because I think you can see that they're they're almost vague in a way. And the the jury had to find that Depp proved all the elements of defamation. They had to find that the statement was made or published by Amber. The statement was about Johnny. The statement was false. The statement has a defamatory, a defamatory implication about Johnny. The defamatory implication was designed and intended by Miss Heard. And due to circumstances surrounding the publication of the statement, it conveyed a defamatory implication to someone who saw it other than Johnny. And on top of that, they had to prove by clear and convincing evidence that Amber acted with actual malice when this was published. And again, it's just in my gut, I really struggle with how any of these could meet these very high standards, frankly. And, you know, the the part of it that Amber won, if you will, and her claims against uh, Johnny were actually statements that were made in the Daily Mail by Waldman, who was Johnny Depp's attorney at the time. And these statements are off the rails, okay? I mean, I believe the one that she actually prevailed on was this statement. Quite simply, this was an ambush, a hoax. They set Mr. Depp up by calling the cops, but the first attempt didn't do the trick. The officers came to the penthouses, thoroughly searched and interviewed, and left after seeing no damage to face or property. So Amber and her friends spilled a little wine and roughed the place up, got their story straight under the direction of a lawyer and publicist, and then placed a second call to 911. I mean, just the nature of the statements in Amber's versus this are striking. On top of that, I think, you know, another thing I struggle with is that she very clearly proved domestic abuse. Domestic abuse encapsulates verbal abuse, emotional abuse. You can't tell me by the texts and the videos and everything she had that she did not suffer those things. I think maybe what hurt her case is the mention of sexual abuse in this op-ed and the title being, a, I spoke up against sexual violence. I think the jury might have had trouble believing her stories about sexual violence and that kind of ruined her whole case. And I think another thing you have to keep in mind with this is that the jury is human, right? As much as juries are supposed to make decisions based on the law, sometimes they get feelings in their gut, just like I have feelings in my gut about this. And they go in and they're deliberating and they have in mind who they think should prevail. And they're going to kind of mold the verdicts to what they believe, right? We like to think that doesn't happen, 
But I think as you've seen and probably if you follow any sort of public cases, this can happen. This is actually why so much goes into this sort of strategy and theater of court that we talked about earlier. It's why thoughts put into what people wear. It's thoughts put into how the lawyers present themselves. A lot of times if a jury doesn't like the lawyer, they are not going to want that lawyer's client to prevail. And I think people liked Johnny Depp's attorneys more than they liked Johnny's. And again, this is just my opinion. I, you know, who we don't know what went on behind closed doors when the juries were deliberating. But I think psychology is a lot more at play than this than just the letter of the law. And that's something to keep in mind. I also think it was frankly impossible for this jury to avoid the media coverage of this trial unless they literally were like in a hyperbaric chamber and shut off from the world because it I felt pummeled with it honestly it was everywhere so I don't even know how they would have gone on the internet without inadvertently seeing things about this trial which clearly like they're not supposed to do but even just walking in and out of the courtroom they were going to see the immense support for Johnny Depp And again, we're humans and we can be swayed by stuff like that. So not to be a complete downer and speak to this right after, but I'm so disgusted by the school shooting that happened in Texas recently. I donated a little bit to every town. It was not a ton, but I encourage if you do have the means to do so, to give a little if you can. I will link to them in the show notes. And again, I'm just so disturbed, so disgusted and something needs to change. All right, let's move on to something a little more lighthearted. I want to talk about the Liam Payne interview on the Impulsive podcast. Liam Payne, as you may recall, was a prominent member of boy band One Direction. I was a number one fangirl, loved 1D, was a fan since they hit the American sound waves in 2012. So he did a podcast interview with Logan Paul. And I will tell you, it physically pained me to give stupid Logan Paul and Big Mike a download on their podcast, I find them both to be insufferable. Like legitimately, it pained me. But I did it because I wanted to talk about this interview. And I didn't want to just read the little sound bites about it in articles. I wanted to hear it all the way through to get a full picture of what went down. Because Liam is getting dragged for statements he said during this interview. I'll start off by saying... This interview was recorded at a Minnesota crypto conference that was, I believe, hosted by Gary Vee, and apparently Liam is tight with Gary Vee now. Gary Vee owns a lot of businesses. My favorite of his is Rezzy. I love Rezzy, Rezzy Stan, but he's kind of obnoxious. He's I find his advice so, ugh, like, I wish I could articulate it better, but it's sort of giving me girl boss for the white man. You know, it's just, it's a lot of like, anyone could do this. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Like, bleh, bleh, bleh. I just, ugh. So to just give you an idea of how bro-y the mindset these people were already in, you're on a Logan Paul interview with stupid-ass Big Mike, who I think is so sexist, misogynistic, disgusting. And then Logan Paul, who literally filmed, you know, people who had completed suicide in a forest and put it online, if that tells you anything about him. Um, anyways, so Liam goes on this podcast and he is very clearly drinking whiskey during the interview. He seems drunk throughout the interview. 
I also have to preface this by saying that while I was a 1D stan, I was in particularly a Liam girl. When I went to their concert for the first time, I put um, a little iron press of Liam Payne's face on a crop top. I used to wear this to law school with no shame in my game. And, you know, I don't think anyone ever commented on it. And I like wanted them to comment on it. I wanted to be like, yes, I am a 1D fan. And yes, this is Liam Payne on my crop top. He is a little bit of a dum-dum. He's always given me dum-dum vibes. I don't know how to say it any other way. He's like one of those people who tries to come across as very intelligent and wise, but I'm just like, oh, you're just a sweethearted little dum-dum. And I think after this interview, a lot of people were reevaluating if he is so sweethearted. This is also coming on the tales of him publicly cheating on his fiance. So not the best vibes. Okay, so one of the things he said that he's getting a lot of flack about is Simon Cowell put together One Direction on the show X Factor in the UK. He created this sort of group. Now, Liam Payne had been on X Factor a few years before, and he got kicked off, and Simon was like, I want you to go off, do some work, get better, come back, and I can promise you I will like make this happen for you. So it comes where... Liam is about to get kicked off for the second time and he's called back and I believe they were just called back for dramatic effect. I think Simon Cowell always had it in mind that he was going to put this group together. So Liam's about to leave. He gets called back. He's like, you're going to be in a group. He calls his dad and he's like, dad, should I do this? And the dad's like, yeah, you should, honestly. <laughs> like, better to be in this group and be something than to be solo and nothing. And so Liam gets in the group. The rest is sort of history. But what he says on the podcast is that Simon based the band around him because of his promise that he made to him two years earlier. My understanding of One Direction lore, this is true. Like, I, I don't think anything he said regarding this was controversial. He was sort of the the block, the main man of the band. And he was so cute. He had his little floppy hair, adorable. I thought his voice was so strong. To this day, I think he has the strongest voice of any of the band members. I saw a TikTok of a girl saying he got JC Shazade, and that is so true. If you're familiar with NSYNC, JC Shazade is the best performer, has the best voice, but quickly took a back seat because of the charm of Justin Timberlake, which honestly I don't really get because I don't find Justin Timberlake particularly attractive or charming, but that is what happened. He became the front man because people loved him. The same thing happened with Harry. I also think Harry and Zayn have very strong voices as well, but Liam is very classic sounding. I think he was steered so dirty when his first song after going solo was stripped that down. He should have taken the Michael Bublé route. His voice is so well suited to sing that sort of like light, you know, what is it like light FM radio sound? And I just think whoever was managing him really blew it for him by taking him this completely other direction. No pun intended. And then I think the other kind of salacious stuff he talked about was just kind of what went down behind the scenes in the band. First off, I will say he seems deeply troubled throughout this interview. He says he has a lot of demons he's dealing with still to this day and sort of processing the fact that he was in this huge boy band that I think if you're outside of it, we will never be able to comprehend just how big One Direction was and what they went through. And he kind of spoke to the fact that so much of his time when he was touring was just spent in hotel rooms alone and how mentally that was so hard and just kind of feeling like he couldn't go anywhere and be off. It was just a hundred percent all the time being on. And I really felt for him in that because 
he was a child star effectively they were very young when they first were in this band they were in their you know late teens early 20s and psychologically again i don't think we'll ever comprehend what that was like so i sympathized with him from that aspect because i think what he was saying i won't say was taken out of context but when you view it with the overall theme of the podcast of him being like I literally have so much stuff I have to deal with. I don't even know who I am as a person. I just pretend to be other people because I haven't found myself. And I've had to go through through so much therapy and still do to kind of deal with everything. I felt a little softness for him because of that. But anyways, so some of the behind the scenes stuff is he said in the beginning he really hated Louis and they would like beat each other up and come to blows. But now they are the closest. He says Louis is like his bestie. They talk all the time. Very close. He had a lot of general puffery throughout this whole interview, just hyping himself up. But I really didn't view it as coming from a true place of confidence. I viewed it more as I feel like I'm supposed to be all of this and all of that. And yet I have trouble accepting that he was talking about how he was in writing sessions with Pharrell and he's like I just had no confidence in myself that I couldn't even take advantage of this writing session with Pharrell because I just thought of myself as kind of a loser so I sort of saw past the bravado of the rest of the interview because I just think he was feeling really down on himself and quite drunk off of whiskey honestly you can hear the whiskey like clanking in his cup as he's doing this interview the little ice cubes ringling around so he also says that Zayn didn't really have the most supportive parents after making a jab about his issues with Gigi and Yolanda, which obviously people took issue with that. And they were kind of like, why are you speaking about his private life? But again, the comment he says right after is he's like, I, you know, there's a lot of reasons I'll dislike Zayn, but there's a lot of reasons I'll always support him and kind of saying like he has a soft spot for him. So again, I didn't really, yeah, it's, it's fucked up to say people's parents aren't supportive if that's something very personal I think for someone to say but he has since apologized for those comments again I'm really not here to like stand Liam Payne and I'm not saying there were things that there were not things that were problematic in this interview but I think when you listen to it as a whole you're gonna see a deeply troubled young man who literally has so much processing and work to do and it got me kind of worried about him But I will say the funniest thing is that he kept talking about how Strip That Down, the song, has done so much better than his bandmates. And there was a tweet. (laughs) It's from Pop Bass. It says, Liam Payne believes his debut solo single, Strip That Down, outsold the other One Direction members. And then it says, quote, first song, billion streams. I think it outsold everybody within the band. And it's a side-by-side of an unflattering picture of Liam from this interview. And then the streams of everyone out so it has watermelon sugar adore you sign of the times which are all from harry i don't want to live together forever from the 50 shades soundtrack which was with zane uh dusk till dawn and then pillow talk which is also zane and then strip that down is below all of those songs and i'm like oh they really went for the jugular on that one but again i maybe it's just because i was a liam Payne girl to begin with and i shouldn't be excusing his actions I'm I'm already disgusted he was on Logan Paul's podcast. Like, again, let's not get this twisted. But I just think when you listen to it for a whole, you will see a little bit of a wounded soul. Okay, speaking of other things that got me riled up, there was an article in The Cut about Arden Cho, who played Kira on Teen Wolf. Again, huge Teen Wolf stan. But I kind of faded off at the end. I didn't watch the last season. So it just came to my attention through this article that she was unceremoniously cut from the sixth season. 
And it was because she was offered half as much as her castmates, and she's also Asian-American. So it says, a report from Deadline that showed the only woman of color among the show's four female leads had turned down the movie after being offered half the per-episode salary proposed to her three counterparts. At the time, Cho was tight-lipped, commenting via only a few notable likes on Twitter. Quote, I think I was actually offered even less. She says now, giving a half-hearted chuckle while insisting that whoever leaked the story wasn't in her camp, quote, I probably would have never shared it. And this is just so heartbreaking on so many levels. And again, I don't think I mentioned, but Teen Wolf is having a movie come out and Arden Cho and Dylan O'Brien are not appearing in the movie. And there's also a quote, it says, for the record, no other Teen Wolf actors commented on the report, though Dylan O'Brien, who also declined to return for the revival, did like a tweet supporting Cho. And she says he's always been very, very supportive of her but again i'm like that's just so disgusting and kira was a great character i will say i thought she was such a breath of fresh air i hated allison and allison died in the series and apparently she's coming back for the movie like why girl and like what have you done since teen wolf i don't get me started on allison i do not i am not an allison fan (laughs) all right that was like the longest intro of all time let's get into our articles for the day Okay, we're going to start out with some non-cut articles. First, we have one from the New York Times about Alex Cooper, the host of Call Her Daddy. It says, Alex Cooper's Coming for Joe Rogan's Spot by David Marchese. If y'all have listened for a while, you know I was infatuated with the breakup of Alex Cooper and Sophia Franklin, her ex-co-host of Call Her Daddy, how Alex Cooper got a $60 million plus deal with Spotify for her podcast. I'm just fascinated with it all. So clearly I had to read this article and comment on it. David asks her if the culture of sports had an influence on how she thinks about the podcast. And she talks about how she's so competitive, how her dad played Division I hockey, her mom's an equestrian, both of her siblings played sports. And then she talks about how she was pushed in college to this level of competition that she didn't really understand at the time, but how it pushed her to a level that she's still really grateful for. But this is what I wanted to touch on. And I knew actually from listening to her podcast back in the day that she did not play soccer her final year of college. And she says, I'll talk about it one day. I had a traumatic experience happen in college with regard to soccer. It made me a stronger person. So learning the tools of competitiveness, resilience, having to gain confidence in yourself, although it was hard in the moment, that does translate to who I am today as the host of Call Her Daddy. And he asks, are you able to tell me about the traumatic experience? And she says, I would prefer not to just because I'm not personally healed, but I got a full ride to play and my senior year I didn't play, but I kept my full scholarship. That can kind of indicate where the wrong was done. I got to keep my full scholarship, but didn't play because of a situation with the coach. And he asks, there was an inappropriate behavior? And she says, yeah, basically the dean of students and sports came together and said, like, what do you want? Because there was inappropriate. Yeah. And she kind of trails off and, you know, stops talking about it. She says, I'm going to tell the story one day, but I need to figure out in what medium I need to be in a position where I'm fully healed. So first off, kind of shocking that the interviewer was really pressing it because I feel like she's like, this was traumatic. And then he's like, well, can you tell me about the traumatic experience? I mean, I appreciate him for doing his journalistic duty, but damn and She kind of does very much allude to what happened. Like it de- there was improper behavior from her coach on the soccer team and clearly the school sided with her. But I am so fascinated to see what route she goes with telling her story. I do think she'll have a book probably fairly soon. I could see her coming out with a book within two years, kind of while we're still writing this high of like call her daddy. 
And the interviewer even goes as far as to say, you suggested that, that there were ways in which that experience helped plant the seed for Call Her Daddy. How so? And she says, I got something I worked for my entire life stripped away because someone in a position of power couldn't control themselves. And I did nothing wrong. So what I took was the motivation of feeling like no one will ever again take something away from me just because they're title wise above me. That ignited something in me. I felt, you know what? I'm going to exude the confidence that I know I have in myself. And that's not going to derail my goals. If anything, it's going to propel me to be like, F you and watch me now succeed. I was trying to embody that and call her daddy. Be confident in yourself and you don't need to be in a position where you feel uncomfortable. So I thought that was actually a pretty powerful statement from her because I have mixed, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about Call Her Daddy as a whole. I do think clearly Alex Cooper has succeeded what she wanted to succeed. She wanted to become famous. She wanted to be a top player in the podcast industry and she's done so. And I don't think we can look past that. And (laughs) I love this part though. She says, I truly believe what I'm doing is changing the podcast industry. And he says, in what way? And she goes, as a consumer, I don't listen to podcasts. I only listen to my own. And I was like, damn, bitch. Like, okay. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine having a $60 million podcast deal and not even bothering to listen to other people's podcasts? I listen to people's podcasts all the time, A, because I enjoy them and I find them very informative, but B, because I really like learning from what I like about other podcasts. I try to take from it in ways Because I'm like, well, this resonated with me. Maybe this will resonate with my listeners. So the fact that she's just like, nope. I was like, okay, damn girl. Okay. All right. I also have to touch on this article in Wonderland. It was an interview with Jack Harlow by Dana Southall. He's the internet boyfriend du jour, if you ask me. So I'm speaking on this for all my thirsty Jack Harlow listeners out there. I know you're out there. Hello. Welcome. So... (laughs) I love this lead into the article. She says, as I prepare to sit down with one of the biggest rappers in the world, my nerves have somehow convinced me it is a date. I feel like I'm in fact awaiting an anxious tender meet rather than eagerly anticipating an interview with Wonderland's latest cover star. But perhaps it's because Harlow makes his celebrity so attainable and down to earth that this date seems feasible. Either way, I have to admit, both scenarios require thorough CSI style research. She gives us a little summary of his background. In case you didn't know, he was born Jackman Thomas Harlow. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky. He wanted to be a rapper from the time he was 12 years old. And by 19, he had released Dark Knight. And that was the song that got him his first record deal with Atlantic. And then two years after that, he sort of hit global fame with What's Poppin', which peaked at number two on Billboard's Hot 100 chart. He did a little Nas collab with... Uh, industry baby and now he has had a debut album and it says the world has become consumed by the tangible accessible charm that emanates from jack harlow i want to read some quotes from this article because i'm like okay i get the charm i get it he's not my cup of tea but like i get it he says i mean i always got the cutest girls in class harlow laughs when i ask him about his sex symbol status i've really grown into myself in the past year or two so the energy around me has definitely heightened I point this out because please go look at old pictures of Jack Harlow. He was nothing to look at. He <laughs> He's really cleaned up his look. He looked like someone who worked at the Radio Shack, who breathed out of his mouth and didn't know how to talk to women. And I say this as a mouth breather who doesn't know how to talk to men. Okay, I, I know my type. Then he goes on to say, hmm, I like girls with dark hair. I can't help my preference. I think most people have a pattern for what they like and what they gravitate to, and you can't control that. But yeah, there's just something about girls with brown black hair. In terms of personality, I like sweethearts. I just want someone to love on me and never criticize me. I think the toxic jerky type is really popular right now, but I'm just a sweetheart, so I want my girl to match that. (laughs) 
I mean, A, yes, we love a brown black hair moment. Dark haired girls for the win. But guys, I just don't know if I buy this. Like, is he really that sweet? Does he really want a sweetheart? I think he might be the toxic jerky type. I hope not, but I I just don't know. I don't know, guys. I don't know if I'm fully buying it. Can someone convince me? He says, I think I'm a simple guy. My ideal date would most likely be Target, you know, just shopping around with my arm around you. I feel like the brand is designed to make you happy, and I love being in there. Well, I mean, again, he's just... He knows what the girlies want to hear, okay? Who doesn't love Target? He says, Ikea and Bed Bath & Beyond are cool as well, but I think it's nice to just walk and have a laugh. We haven't got to do all of that. Agreed. Would love that. But homie, you better also be taking me to like a nice-ass dinner. And I want the good drinks. Now, this I didn't know. Apparently, he has signed on to be a star in the remake of Ron Shelton's White Men Can't Jump. So this will be his first acting role. And... I was kind of shocked by this and then I was actually like this transition makes perfect sense to me I think it's good he's making this move really early on in the kind of the climax of his fame I'm fascinated to see how he is as an actor and I think he will be good because I think he's maybe acting in these interviews a little bit I think he's giving the people what they want and then for those the little girlies out there who are fans I wanted to share these tidbits he says if his career wasn't what it was he would like to be an at-home masseuse and he would really like Succession's Nicholas Braun to play him in a biopic about his life. And he says, I'm really telling my story right now, but I really want to expand into making songs to help others. I want to push the boundaries and make it less and less about me. I want to touch the world in a way that lasts forever. Again, this is such a good PR for Jack Harlow. I think a lot of people are going to read this and be like, oh, Jack, you're just amazing. Now let's move on from Jack to Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal spoke to us for three solid minutes about Pasta Pomodoro. This is by Amelia Pacharka in The Cut. She explains that she had a video call with him and he spent the entirety of the 15-minute interaction doing his best to evoke different smells for her. So apparently he is the face of Prada's Luna Rosa Ocean scent for men. And obviously this is PR for the scent. But she says that he's pretty good at describing scents. And she says, I could talk to him about honeysuckle and pasta pomodoro all day long. So she asked him what his earliest scent memory is. And he says, I really remember this honeysuckle bush that grew over our, I guess you could call it a carport. And he says, I remember when it would bloom, the smell of that honeysuckle, and then also pulling the stem and tasting it. When I say it now, it sounds pretty idyllic. Like, oh, the old honeysuckle bush at my parents' house. But it was really just over a carport. A, I like how he's trying to seem all humble, like, We all know you came from rich money LA shit. Taylor Swift's talked about it herself. And I also loved it because I also sucked out the honeysuckles. Nothing tastes better than honeysuckle juice. I would eat so many of those. If you could get high off of honeysuckle, I would have been. Like, let me know if you did this too. I was slurping like that shit, like the earliest cocktail of my life. And I haven't had one in forever. And I would really like one because I can still remember the taste on my tongue. And it was delicious. And then she asks, uh, what does home smell like to you? And he says, home to me smells like pasta pomodoro. Since I live in New York and it's almost summertime, I would say it probably smells like garbage in the best sense. But I really think pomodoro. (laughs) Are you making this pomodoro or someone else? He says, yes, I'm making it. It's every stage of the pomodoro, not just the final version. It's the initial olive oil and garlic stage. And then there are other stages depending on how you make your pomodoro. If I had to choose, though, it'd be the final version of the pomodoro. And no matter where I am in the world, that smell makes me feel at home. I will say 
Again, I had to say it every time we talk about him when I saw him on the streets of New York, but I don't know if I mentioned before that he was carrying an Italy bag. And now all I can think is that in that Italy bag were probably the ingredients to make his Pomodoro. And I feel like he could have gone somewhere a little more creative than Italy to get the ingredients. But now I'm just convinced that's what he was making. And she asked if it was a dish he's always cooked. Um, And he says, over the years, I've discovered what I gravitate toward. Home is about comfort and about warmth. And hopefully that's more figuratively speaking, but there's also the literal smells of home. I remember the smell of our couch, speaking to her first question. He says, but I've always cooked and Pomodoro always seems to find its way back into my life. Very recently, it's been perfected by a dear friend who is a chef who taught me how to do it even more simply. She really changed everything for me. What I would do to know what chef he's speaking about here. And she's like, well, what's the secret sauce? And he says, she would be so upset with me. The thing I love about Pomodoro is the simplicity of it and how difficult it is to do right. I think it takes patience. If you want to get into it, tomatoes are acidic, but they're also very sugary. So it's about finding that balance when you decide to finish cooking it. And also there's the chemistry of how much pasta versus how much sauce, which is definitely part of the experience. I'm not saying home isn't a complex thing, but ultimately it's getting as simple as possible. We could talk about this forever, but we should probably move on. And he says, she says that, Amelia, and he says, am I making you hungry? I love how in-depth he went in this. And now I just think it's a life goal of mine that I didn't have before to have pasta pomodoro made by Jake Gyllenhaal himself and then ideally after that I would get to try Rob Pattinson's microwave pasta just to really bring everything full circle (laughs) all right let's get on to our next article Sarah Jessica Parker is not done talking about Kim Cattrall by Danielle Cohen oh y'all you guys know that there's been this ongoing kind of quote-unquote feud between Sarah Jessica and Kim Cattrall and rumors that that's why Kim Cattrall didn't return to the series they've both spoken up out about it frequently and Sarah Jessica could not stop talking about it. She was on the Hollywood Reporter's uh, Award Shatter podcast. And as Danielle writes, she took the opportunity to discuss some decades-old beef with Kim Cattrall, who did not reprise her role as Samantha in the reboot. So she weighed in on Cattrall's departure from the Sex and the City universe. And she actually says that it was the studio's fault and not Kim Cattrall's as to why the third movie was called off. She says the studio didn't feel comfortable meeting where she wanted to meet. Every actor has a right to ask for things and it's not my business where we had disappointed. Sure. But it happens. Okay. So she's saying it's, you know, the studio's fault, but she's also saying clearly it was because Kim was asking for more money than they were willing to give. And it's probably bullshit because I'm guessing that Sarah Jessica was being paid more than Kim and Kim was like, hello, like I make this serious pay up and they didn't do that. And I think, you know, beyond Sarah Jessica just saying oh yeah you have the right to ask for things and it's not her business well actually it is your business because women in these situations I fully believe have to come together and be like no we need to be paid all the same and I'm not the star of this episode like we all are we're an ensemble cast of four and that's what makes this show what it is so this rubbed me the wrong way and she denied that she contributed to any sort of feud with Kim. She says, I've never uttered fighting words in my life about anybody that I've worked with. There has been no public dispute or spat or conversations or allegations made by me. Actually, there has been one person talking and I'm not going to tell her not to. Oh, this came across as so shady to me. And like now I kind of get why Candace Bushnell was shading her because this is just actually not true because Sarah Jessica always talks about this shit. Danielle points this out. She says that she hasn't been silent on this matter. In 2018, she called uh, Cattrall's accusations about the team, quote, extremely painful. Oh, I'm sorry, enormously painful. And then in a separate interview, she said she was, quote, just heartbroken about what had happened. 
And then she joked with Ellen that, you know, Ellen should play Samantha in the next iteration. Like, she's done shady shit. And she said in this podcast, she made it clear that it wasn't something she wanted to pursue. It did not occur to us to reach out. That's not slamming her. That's just learning. And they felt comfortable uh, moving on without her. So I don't know. Again, mixed feelings. I feel like Sarah Jessica is the one who keeps drudging all this shit up. And I think Kim Cattrall is having just a final time. She's in TV shows. She's doing her thing. Like, let her live. All right, guys, we've made it to our blind item of the week. We had to talk about Jack Harlow. And I just wanted to talk about a really innocuous, lighthearted one since we talked about some heavy shit in this episode. And this is a recent one that was revealed on May 4th, 2022. As normal, I'll give my little spiel that take these with a grain of salt these are from crazy days and nights people have mixed feelings about his reporting on these issues it's not even reporting it's blind items okay it's it's not real but this one is not even a blind item it's just funny it says by all means take your shot with the foreign-born a-list singer but she should probably be more impressed to date the a-list rapper if his verses were any good or at least the one about her especially (laughs) this is referring to jack harlow's song about dua lipa so he's saying yeah take your shot with dua lipa but she'd be more impressed if your verses were any good especially the one about her like this isn't even a blind item this is just nt being full-on shady towards jack harlow (laughs) We've made it to our legit shit of the week. This week, I thought I'd feature a necklace that my sister Kenzie loves to wear. I thought it was fitting since we had some One Direction talk this week, and this brand is a favorite of Mr. Harry Styles himself. I admittedly do not know how to say it. It's Eliao Eliao, I think, but they have really cute stuff, and I'm linking it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Get yourself a little necklace. She literally wears hers every day. She has one that's pearl and little glass beads, and I feel like it's held up really well. She got it for Christmas, so I just wanted to share that brand with you guys because I don't think I've spoken about them before. As usual, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating on Spotify. It's super quick. It's super easy. If you don't know how to do it, you can DM me. I'll tell you how. And again, if you listened to this episode and liked it, you could like maybe screenshot it and tag me in an Instagram story. I would love to see that. You can follow me everywhere at Bailey Evan, B-A-I-L-E-Y-E-V-I-N. Follow me on TikTok. I've been having fun over there and I could use some nice voices in my comments. I love you guys and I'll see you next week. Bye.